Why don't we stand up? We've done this song a few times here at this church, but uh, it's called My King Forever. And the chorus is all praise to the Lord Most High. And uh, um, we've talked about this so far this year, but it's really all or nothing. Um, let's make that choice to give him all praise and, and not just words that we sing, but our hearts, our mind, our strength, our bodies. So let's get after it this morning. Let's worship him for who he is, what he deserves. Let's sing, you gave your life. You gave your life for mine. Nailed to the cross, you crucified all my sin and shame was washed by your mercy and you are the treasure I find my reason for living so let my life become an offering to the one who is worthy let's give him praise all praise to the Lord Most High. All praise to the one who saved my life. All praise to Jesus Christ, High King of Heaven, my King forever. storm the gates of my heart the veil in between was torn apart now you hold the keys to the grave could you bring things to life you roll stones away all praise to the Lord most high all praise to the one who all praise to Jesus Christ, High King of Heaven, my King. Sing all praise, all praise to the Lord Most High. All praise to the One who saved my life. All praise to Jesus Christ, High King of Heaven. talked about this as well just sometimes that physical posture is what gets us out of our comfort zone our 
comfort. So as we sing this bridge, I lift my hands up, lay my whole life down. Let's lift our hands. I lift my hands. I lift my hands up, lay my whole life down. My whole life down before you. I lift my hands up, lay my whole life down. My whole life now is for you. I lift my hands. I lift my hands up, lay my whole life down. My whole life down before you. I lift my hands up, lay my whole life down. My whole life now. Is for you. Lift my hands. I lift my hands up. Lay my whole life down. My whole life down before you. I lift my hands up. Lay my whole life down. My whole life now is for you. One more time. I lift my hands up. Lay my whole life down. God, we just give you our lives. God, we give you our own lives personally. We surrender to you. God, and as a church, we just want to corporately lay ourselves before you and ask that you would have your way in us today.
And we don't know what that means or what that looks like. But God, we say we're ready and we want that. We surrender to you. We lay ourselves down. God, would you speak? You're worthy of all of our praise, God. So we give it to you today. Be worshiped. Do what you want to do, God. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. on the screen so you can kind of see some things. So welcome to Hillside Community Church. Um, we've got a lot of different avenues to give announcements and to keep people up to date and informed on what's going on. The first one is the Bible app. If you're not using this, I just want to give you a little taste and look at how this functions. So you just have to make sure you download this, the Bible app, version. And then in here, you come to the more, and I know it's small, but in the lower corner, you click more. And then there's an event section, and you can see where Hillside is actually listed. So you click on Hillside, and then inside of this are all of the notes. So you can go down and you can see, I'm just going to highlight that application two. There's a lot in this application, so I'm excited, but this would be a lot for you to write down, right? And so what we've done is we're capturing all of the sermon notes in this. The nice thing about this too is if we were to jump over and look at our website and we come into sermons, you can scroll down and every week after the sermon, Mike is loading in that same Bible app. So if you're not here and you want to stay current on what's going on, this is a great place to come. You can see all the details and all the notes and all the sermons. So if you've missed a week, especially when we're going through Romans, Missing a week might actually throw you off the next week or the next week. So these are all building on each other really importantly. We usually get probably about 60 or so people coming to just the YouTube page to view these. I usually go and view myself and make notes about dumb things I said or ways that I speak that I shouldn't be. But this is a great little tool. So I'm going to highlight a couple of the announcements today using this. We've got our prayer night tomorrow. March 20th. So make sure if you've got questions about that, you can come in here. You can actually email the prayer team here. If you've got prayers and you're not able to make the prayer night tomorrow night, I would love for you to go ahead and click on this today and email them. Let them know what's going on so as we gather as a prayer team, we can be praying for what's going on in your world. Also coming up, the worship service. Worship night, March 23rd. That's Thursday night. We're going to start doing this on a regular basis once a month where we gather together and it's, a, it's a, going to be a place where we can practice worship more. Like, it's not going to be quite as um, structured as maybe Sunday mornings, but a place for you to practice, a place for us to practice. We might have a mic for people to share and pray into. I don't know if that's going to happen this Thursday or not. But yeah, so we want to start 
moving us forward as a congregation, and this is going to be a place for us to live out and practice worship together. So make sure if you're interested in that, come and be part of that. Then I'm going to bring up Amanda. Um, as many of you know, we're now approaching Heather Schul's celebration of life service. There's a couple things that we're going to be doing as a congregation. We're going to be providing food. Um, she, want, she loved cheese and chocolate. So we're going to have two special tables just overflowing with cheese and chocolate. Everything will be decorated in purple-ish. Purple and pink were her colors. Um, but we're also doing a special project, and Amanda's going to share that with us. So I just wanted to extend an invitation to everybody. Um, if you had an opportunity to hear Heather's interview with Kevin, she talked about her love and experience in Sunday school. She spent a lot of years, many years, teaching Sunday school, and I had the pleasure of teaching with her. It was really formative to her relationship with God and learning the stories of the Bible. Um, so as I was thinking about what would be honoring to Heather, I really wanted, I really wanted to incorporate Sunday School into, into her remembering service. So we are going to do a church-wide project. Um, primarily, I've got the, we've got it set up in the new basement. We're bringing the kids in from Sunday School, so all the kids will have an opportunity. But I wanted adults to have this opportunity as well. Heather taught for so many years, so I know that there were kids who were in the two and three class who are now big kids. You don't go downstairs anymore. So please come down and make a flower for Heather. Adults, please come down and make a, make a flower for Heather. Um, these will be incorporated into her, like the bigger live bouquets of flowers. And it's just a nod to remembering her love of teaching in that room. And um, you know, we always do crafts down there. So this is, this is where this crafty thing is coming from. It takes like two to five minutes. So it's really fast. You don't have to have special skills. It's really easy, and we've got a lot of purple down there, so you can honor her with purple. Um, we're going to be down there in the new basement this Sunday and next Sunday. So if you're at home and you're not here, please come next Sunday and make a flower. And then um, the last thing you need to know is we will be after service. So when service is done, please come down. Again, two to five minutes. It's a quick thing. Yeah. Thanks, Amanda. If anyone else is interested in being part of helping out in the service, just contact me, send me an email. Um, it's just our opportunity to really honor the family. I was with Rodney, the kids, and some of her friends yesterday just planning the day out, and um, they, they're just, there's a huge gap missing in their world right now. Rodney's still trying to figure out how to pay bills. So, I mean, she's like, she did everything. Um, but we're gonna honor that, and we're gonna really celebrate that also want to point out to you where you can get a hold of the Right Now Media stuff. We are allowing this to be part. It's a free thing that we've made available to everyone. There's some really good Romans resources in there. So if you come to our resource page under About, you click on Resources, and at the very top, it's the Right Now Media. You click on the green link. This is a good place for you if you're in a life group or you're in small groups, men's, women's, any kind of study. There is a, a load of resources here that Sean has been able to organize for us uh, just by getting us this, um, this free pass to be able to access it. So make sure you go there. Um, but that's really about all we have today, except for this. Um, we've got two folks going to Nicaragua coming up pretty soon. We're going to be do some, doing some fundraising, but you're going to find Elena and Jory's letters in the back. Um, we're going to have a time for them to be able to share more of what they're doing. Um, is it the next two weeks from now? 
two weeks from now when we have our barbecue, or not barbecue, or potluck coming up. So make sure you grab these and learn a little bit more about what they're doing. Um, awesome for us to be able to get behind them. But we're going to dismiss kids, and I'm going to be teaching youth group today, so youth group will be next door. Kids are going to go to the foyer. The rest of you are going to greet each other. Let's uh, 
Go ahead and pull it back together here. Go ahead and find a seat. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. Looks like we got a little bit of a smaller crowd today, I guess with spring break, but great to see you all here. Great to have everyone online. <clears throat> we are going to continue today in our series on the book of Romans, and we're going to be talking about a false sense of security. So we're going to be digging into Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and meet me there. Otherwise, you can just read up here on the screen along with me. But let's read our passage for today. Again, Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. It says, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, at first glance, this passage doesn't seem to have a whole lot to do with us today because it's primarily focused on the Jew in Paul's audience. And since most of us are Gentiles and not Jews, then we might be tempted to kind of skip over this passage. But one of the benefits of preaching through a book like Romans, passage by passage and verse by verse, is that we are forced to consider every verse, every passage, and figure out how and if it's applicable to us today. And after you read this passage a few times, especially in the context of the whole chapter and the context of the book of Romans, the applicability and the relevance become much more obvious to us. And I would suggest that there are basically two messages for us in the passage today. And one of the messages has to do with hypocrisy. And it's kind of one of the more minor messages. I'm going to kind of save that till the end. I'm going to talk about that briefly when we get to the application. But to me, the key message out of this passage is to not develop a false sense of security. Now, as I was preparing this week, I was really trying to find a good story to start with that kind of told, gave an illustration of what it's like to have a false sense of security. And then I realized I didn't have to look any further than how I felt about my NCAA tournament bracket on Wednesday. <clears throat> Before all the games started, right? How many of you did a bracket? Okay, good chunk of you, yeah. And, and just like every other year, I was certain that I had finally filled out the perfect bracket. I had gotten every one of the 63 games correct, right? I was feeling pretty secure. Until the game started on Thursday and it got blown up like within an hour. Okay. As, as it turned out, 32 of the games, there were 32 games played on Thursday and Friday. I got 20 of them right. 
That's like 60%. That's like a new low for me. It was, that, that, that was pretty bad. So I definitely had a very false sense of security about my bracket. Now, have, having a false sense of security about a tournament bracket is, is pretty trivial in the grand scheme of things. But as we're going to see this morning, if we have a false sense of security about our faith, that will have eternal consequences. Now, before we get into the details, let's pray for our time in the Word. God, we just come before you just grateful for just this church and this opportunity to immerse ourselves in your Word. And we thank you for this book of Romans, which is just packed so full of teaching and correction, admonishment, and rebuking, and training, and just, just everything about it, Lord, is amazing. So as we go through our time in the Word this morning, we just pray that you would be glorified. We pray that your Word would be illuminated for us, and, and that we would be edified and encouraged, and that we would leave here closer to you, just one step closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as you've heard me say before time and time again, I think the Old Testament is overlooked in the church today. It's overlooked by Christians. This, this happens every time I teach an Old Testament class at CCU. I kind of pull the students and try to get, figure out where they're at with the Old Testament and what they know about it, what they think about it. And the vast majority of these adult students say, you know, we're just really not that familiar with it. We don't get it that much in our church. Okay? And I think that's unfortunate. Because, and, and, and it's fine that we gravitate toward the New Testament. Obviously, the New Testament contains the, the, the crux of the issue with Jesus and everything he did. But to fully understand what he did, we need to understand the Old Testament. And the passage for today really requires us to know a little bit about the Old Testament, and specifically about the Jewish people. So before we get into the passage today, I want to do a very quick, this is a high level, this is like a semester's worth of information in about three minutes. But I want to give you a high level view of the Jewish people and their biblical history. Now for some of you, this may be, you know, old hat, you've got this down. But for some of you, this might be new information. So this, I hope this is helpful. Now the history of the <coughs> Jewish people begins really with the person of Abram, who is later renamed Abraham. Now, Abraham wasn't a Jew. He wasn't an Israelite. Those identities came much later. But he is considered the patriarch of the Jews, kind of the, the father, the distant father of faith. In chapter 12 of Genesis, Abraham is called by God to leave his country and to go to a land that is completely unfamiliar to him. And God promised him three things. God promised Abraham land for his people, God promised Abraham that he would make his descendants, that he would have tons of descendants, and that they would be a great nation. And then he promised that he would bless all the nations of the world through Abraham and through his descendants. This is referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. Now, when it came to the idea of having numerous descendants, to having this big family and all these kids and all this offspring, Abraham was really skeptical. Because at this point, Abraham and his wife Sarah were childless, and they were actually very old. They were way past what we would consider childbearing years. Now, amazingly, after this, he would go on to have eight sons. Now, the first son was named Ishmael. Okay? And Ishmael was an interesting situation because he was not born to Abraham and Sarah. He was born to Abraham and Hagar. Hagar was Sarah's maidservant. 
And Abraham and Sarah kind of took this promise from God, and they're like, okay, we're supposed to have lots of kids, we're going to have all these descendants, and nothing's happening here, and Sarah was barren, and so Sarah said, well, why don't you kind of go sleep with my maidservant? And that's what Abraham did. They kind of got ahead of themselves a little bit, and they got ahead of God's plan, and they had Ishmael. Now, as it turns out, Ishmael was not the child of promise that God had planned to do all of this work through. So Abraham had a second son named Isaac, and this son was born of his wife, Sarah. And it was about 14 years after Ishmael was born, and Abraham was now about 100, year old, 100 years old. Okay. So he had Isaac. Isaac grew up, <coughs> and Isaac married a woman named Rebekah, and they had twin sons, Esau and Jacob. But even though Jacob was the younger brother, just by a few minutes, but he was the younger brother, he still ended up with the birthright and the blessing that belonged to Esau as the firstborn. So Jacob became the most prominent in that next generation. Now, Jacob grew up and he married two women. Okay, so he married Leah and Rachel. Got a few of you to look up on that one. And then through Leah and Rachel and their maidservants, Four women, Jacob had 12 children. The Old Testament gets a little messy at times, which is why some people really struggle with the Old Testament. But if you understand the whole story, it all makes sense. And you've got to look at the historical context and all those things. So through these four women, Jacob had 12 sons. And these 12 sons became the patriarchs of the 12 branches of Jacob's family. And these branches eventually became known as the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, in the ancient Near East, families were often known by the name of the patriarch. So they could have been called Jacob, they could have been called the Jacobites, but they weren't. They were called Israel. They were called the Israelites. And the name Israel um, came about in Genesis 32 when Jacob wrestled with God, or a heavenly figure, depending on how you read the text, and, and he was renamed Israel, which means literally struggles with God. So ultimately, the family of Jacob, which consisted of these 12 tribes led by his 12 sons, became known as the family of Israel. Then, through a series of events, they end up in Egypt. And there were about 70 of them, it says. The Bible says there was about 70 of them when they moved into the land of Egypt. But they multiplied greatly over the years. And there were, they, they became a threat to the Egyptians. They, they multiplied so fast that the Egyptians were like, they are going to take over. So the Egyptians basically oppressed them, enslaved them, and held them down for about 400 years. So God sent Moses to free the Israelites, and they escaped from Egypt in what's called the Exodus, at which point they became known as the nation of Israel. They were now a large group of people, under the kingship of God. Shortly after they left Egypt, God made another covenant with them through Moses, and this was called the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? And it included the Ten Commandments and a whole host of other instructions that collectively became known as Torah, or the law. And the law was given to Israel because they were God's chosen people. And this is where it starts to tie into our passage for today. Because God had chosen them Specifically, not because they were a great people. Actually, the Bible says they were a stiff-necked people. They were obstinate. They were troublesome to God. But he chose them as their chosen people, as his chosen people. 
because he wanted to use Israel to draw the other nations to himself. And the purpose of the law was to show Israel how to be, how to act, how to worship, how to relate to each other, how to relate to the other nations, how to relate to God himself. And it was a set of behaviors that would set them apart from the other nations. Not for the purpose of exclusion, not to put them up on a pedestal, but for the purpose of making them a holy people and a beacon of light that would draw the other nations to God. In other words, this was how God was going to bless the nations through Abraham and his descendants, going all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. But if you read the Old Testament, it's pretty clear that Israel failed in this mission time and time again. And the law and their status as the chosen people of God became something that caused them to feel self-important and to look down on the nations around them. It became a means of exclusion rather than inclusion. And they began to believe that they were special, that they were specially blessed, not because of God's grace, but because of their own goodness. In other words, it caused them to have a false sense of security about their spirituality, which is exactly what Paul is addressing in the passage for today. So with all that history in mind, <clears throat> let's read this passage again. And hopefully you have a slightly different perspective on it now. It says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve what is superior because you are instructed by the law, so again, this is them as the chosen people. If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, up to this point in the letter, Paul had made it very clear that, that the Jews and the Gentiles were, were on equal footing when it came to spirituality. They were basically in the same boat. They both needed Jesus. But because of this, the Jews probably got the sense that, that Paul was somewhat downplaying the, the privileges that they had, that they felt they had before God. And, and the privileges that Paul addresses here in this section include their heritage as Jews, so their identity, the law itself, the fact that they had been entrusted with the law, and then the right of circumcision, which we're actually not going to talk about this morning. Dan's going to talk about that next week, and he's kind of a prop preacher, so you'll probably want to be here for that. <clears throat> um, sorry, Dan. No. <laughs> Now, the crux of Paul's argument is that these privileges led to a false sense of spiritual security. Now, the first privilege he mentions here, again, is their heritage as Jews. It says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew. Okay. Now, it's interesting here. If you look at the original Greek text here, if you look at the form of this sentence, Paul uses the singular form of you. He doesn't use the plural or the collective form of you. So he's not saying y'all or all y'all, however that goes. He's saying you. He's saying you who call yourself a Jew. So it's as if he's speaking in particular 
to one person. But if you look at the context of the letter, you can see he's not really speaking to one specific person. This isn't like the letter to Timothy or to Titus or any of those. What he's doing here is he's writing his argument in the form of a conversation with another person. And in this case, a hypothetical person. And what he's doing here is he's letting the readers of his letter kind of overhear this conversation. It's just one more rhetorical device he uses. We've talked about how he uses rhetorical questions throughout the letter. Well, this is just another way Paul has developed and matured in his writing and how he structures his arguments. Now, the Jewish people would have gone by different names throughout history. At various points in history, they were known as the Hebrews because, very simply, they spoke the Hebrew language. So they became known as the Hebrews. In Old Testament times, they were typically referred to as the Israelites. That refers back to the whole story I just went through, how they became called the Israelites. But by the time of Christ, they were most typically referred to as Jews. Okay? And this actually came from the name of the southern tribe of Judah. So from Judah, we get Jew. From Judah, we also get Judaism. Okay? So that's where the name came from. So the name Jew represented a lot. It represented their history, it represented their race, it represented their religion, and in their minds it represented a distinctiveness from all the other peoples in the world. That's where we get this delineation between Jew and Gentile. You're one or the other. And, and Jews wore this name as a badge of honor. They saw themselves as unique and favored by God. And they were unique and they were favored by God originally. As I mentioned earlier, they were called by God to be his chosen people and to be a conduit of blessings to all the nations. That's a pretty special role. But by this time in the first century AD, when Paul is writing, many of them had lost sight of that purpose. They had become much more inwardly focused as a people. They also believed that they were somewhat exempt from God's judgment because they were the chosen people of God and because of their heritage and their identity as Jews. So this led to a dangerous, false sense of security. Now, the second privilege that the Jews enjoyed was the law, which much of this passage deals with. The Jews were proud that they alone had been entrusted with the law. They had been given the written revelation of God's character and his will up to that point in history. They were the ones that owned it or were given to them. And because they, believed, because they possessed the law, they believed that they were better able to understand God's will. They were better able to discern right from wrong. And they were convinced that they were called to be teachers to those who were blind, to those who were in the dark, to those who were foolish to those who were immature, primarily to the Gentiles, is what they were thinking. Now again, this was true. This was God's original intent. God gave them the law. He expected them to be exemplars of the law. And then he expected them in turn to be able to teach the law to those that would come to seek him through the Jews. He wanted his people to be holy. But what happened instead is they became self-righteous. And as we can see in these next few passages in verses 21 through 24, <clears throat> the Jews had not only become self-righteous, they had become hypocritical. They saw themselves as teachers of the law. But Paul questioned them rhetorically whether they were even teaching themselves. 
They preached against stealing, but Paul questioned them, again rhetorically, if they were thieves. They spoke against adultery, but Paul questioned if they were in fact committing adultery. And they claimed to abhor idols, which means they would go nowhere near a pagan temple. And yet Paul questions to see if they were in fact robbing pagan temples for their own material gain. So Paul was pointing out their hypocrisy. They boasted in the law, but at the same time they were dishonoring God by breaking it. And as a result, God's name was blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the example that they were setting was so far from what God had wanted them to do. So the Jews did have certain privileges that came from God. But these privileges didn't make them more spiritually secure. Instead, they became the source of their false sense of security. Now, as I said earlier on, I see two key messages for us in this passage today. And this is what I want to focus on here. The first one is simply, don't be a hypocrite. In, In the first century A.D., The Gentiles had daily contact with the Jews, whether it was through business or just society in general. They were intermixed in the city of Rome and throughout the Roman Empire. So Gentiles had exposure to the Jews at all times. And they were not fooled by the Jews' outward devotion to the law. They saw the hypocrisy. And I think people often see hypocrisy in us as Christians today. I read an article this week in which the author suggested that the single greatest cause of atheism in our culture today is hypocritical Christians. People see the hypocrisy of Christians and they're like, I want no part of that. Now, this author definitely had an agenda against Christianity, but I actually agreed with a lot of the things he said. You see, when we identify ourselves as a Christian, In public, in our neighborhood, at our work, in our schools, wherever it might be, people around you are going to take notice. Some of the people around you are going to look to you as an example, as a model they want to follow. They may see something attractive in you. Other people are going to look, they're going to watch, they're going to observe, and they're going to wait for you to slip up and fail. And then they're going to call you out on it because they're hoping that you do. So don't be a hypocrite. I mean, the more positive way to say that would be to be a person of integrity. Make sure your actions align with your beliefs and honor God. We don't want to be the reason that God's name is blasphemed in the world. Now, we can't be perfect. No one's saying that. But we can strive for integrity. We can strive towards holiness. And we can own it when we make a mistake. And when we make a mistake, we don't hide behind our piety. We don't hide behind our religiosity. We own it. We recognize it. We use that as an opportunity to share the gospel. See, guys, I'm not perfect. Let me share you what I just did. But I'm forgiven. And along the same lines, don't be judgmental. Because when we're being judgmental, we're being, by definition, hypocritical. This goes back to what Paul wrote earlier in the letter. He says, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. 
See, if you're judging others and doing the same things, that's the definition of being hypocritical. And our testimony will be worthless at that point. Now, the second message in this passage is to don't look for your sense of security in anything other than Jesus. And this applies to every single one of us. We all long for security. We want financial security. We want job security. We want marital security. We want health security. We want home security. We want national security. We want to be secure. And most of us hope for some form of eternal security as well. And most of us have that innate sense that one day we will be held accountable for the way we've lived. And at the same time, most of us hope that in some way or another we'll escape that judgment, that we won't have to go through that. And so we rely on a false sense of security. Now some find that sense of security in the idea that there is no eternity. In other words, when we die, we simply cease to exist. That makes it a lot easier to not worry about eternity. Some find their eternal security in the idea that there is no God, so all this talk of judgment is nonsense. Some find their eternal security in the idea that if God exists, and if heaven does exist, then certainly I'm going to be good enough to get in, right? My good outweighs my bad. I'm a lot better than a lot of other people, so no problem. Some find their eternal security in their Christian heritage. We talked about the Jews and their heritage, but we sometimes find our security in our Christian heritage, that maybe we were baptized as an infant in our church, or we were raised in a Christian home, or we have Christian parents. Some find their eternal security in the idea that there is no hell. And others find their security in the idea that even if hell does exist, God, who is a loving God, certainly wouldn't condemn people to go there. But, but let me be very direct this morning. And this doesn't come from a place of judgment or condemnation. This comes from a place of love. One, there is an eternity, and our spirit will continue to exist after we die. We are made body and spirit. The body will die. The spirit will continue to live eternally. Two, there is a God. And we will be accountable to him. Romans 1 says that God has made himself plain to us, and we are without excuse. Three, heaven does exist. That's the good news. The reality is none of us are good enough to get there on our own. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Four, being baptized as an infant or growing up in a Christian home or having Christian parents isn't going to help. Those aren't free passes into heaven. Five, and this is where it starts to get hard, and I have a hard time with this myself. Gus talked about this a couple weeks ago. Talking about the concept of hell is one of the most difficult things to talk about. It's one of the most difficult things to read in the Bible, but hell exists, and it has become really fashionable of late for people to preach that hell doesn't exist. But if that's the case, what do we do with all these references to hell in the Bible? Jesus talks far more about hell than he talks about heaven. For instance, in Matthew 25, Jesus clearly teaches about the existence of both heaven and hell. And he ends the section by saying, Then they, referring to the unrighteous, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. 
In Mark chapter 9, Jesus talks about cutting off an offending body part rather than ending up in hell. And in Revelation 20, it says that anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, all of these are references to hell. Now, there are a lot of different descriptions of hell in the Bible. And some of them are contradictory. If you think that hell is this place of fire and hell is this place of darkness, well, how can you have both? Well, it's because these descriptions are metaphorical. We don't know what hell is going to be like. The Bible doesn't describe physically what hell is going to be like. There's lots of different images. There's lots of different symbolism. But what we do know is that it will involve complete separation from God and complete deprivation of all that is good because all that is good comes from God. Lastly, as for this idea that a loving God would never condemn us to hell, well, that's a misunderstanding of theology because God doesn't condemn us to hell. Instead, God provides us the one way to escape hell and be with him for all eternity. He gave us Jesus, who died for our sins so that we could be forgiven and be reconciled to God. And God also gave us free will and the ability to choose or reject Jesus. Now, if we reject Jesus, then we are condemning ourselves to hell. But if we accept Jesus as Savior, if we acknowledge that he died for us and that he was raised from the dead, if we submit to him as Lord, then we get to spend the rest of eternity with him. It's that simple. It's our choice. If you have questions about that, I know that's a, a deep topic, and it's a difficult topic, and we don't have time to go into it here in detail, but we did a whole series of sermons on apologetics back in the summer of 2021. And like Kevin showed you on the website, all of those sermons, our sermon archive is available. I would encourage you to go back and watch, one of, watch those. I did one very specifically on the topic of hell and whether or not you know, God condemns us to hell or we do that. So there's a whole sermon on that. I believe it was August 22nd of 2021. So go back and look at those. Or if you have questions, come find me. Come talk to me about that. I know it's a tough subject. But what I hope is that this motivates you. If you're a believer, I hope this motivates you to not rely on yourself, to not rely on your good works, to not rely on your Christian heritage or upbringing, but only on your faith in Jesus. And I hope this motivates you to share that faith with people around you that don't know the truth. And when you do that, I want you to realize that everyone is going to have a perspective, something that they have basically built their house on their perspective of what gives them eternal security. If that's not built on Jesus, it's just sand, and it's going to wash away. And I was there. I was there. I had all these things that I was counting on or thinking about. I had these objections, and someone helped me to see through all those objections, helped me to remove them brick by brick until I could see the cross clearly. So to find out where people are at, what their perspectives are, what's holding them back, what are they putting their security in, ask questions. You don't need to start shoving doctrine down their throat. Ask questions. Have a conversation. Find out where they're coming from. Be available for their questions. Answer what you can, and if you can't answer it, 
Tell him you'll come back and give him an answer later. And pray. This is the most important thing. Pray. Rely on the Holy Spirit. It is not your job to save people. The Holy Spirit does that. He uses us. We're a conduit of truth. And it's a privilege to do that anytime you've ever been involved in that. But it's not your job. So take the pressure off. Let the Holy Spirit do the heavy lifting. But you need to be available. Now you may get the response that you're being elitist, exclusive, judgmental. But that is far from the truth because there is no greater gift than to show someone the way to salvation. Someone once said, as Christians, we're just beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. That's what it's all about. Now, if you're not a believer, I hope this motivates you to really think about your eternal security, to think about your perspective, to think about your objections, to ask questions, to seek answers and ultimately to find Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Because at some point, it's going to be too late. And I don't want you to be looking back with hindsight, regretting your decisions. Now, the principle of hindsight is really obvious when you fill out a bracket for the NCAA tournament. When you pick those winners, you just look at it, and you're like, oh, I nailed every one of them. But when you look at the results... <laughs> You kind of kick yourself. And, and it's so easy to sit there and think, oh, why didn't I pick that other team? It's so obvious now. That's with the benefit of hindsight. And again, sense of security about our NCAA bracket, trivial. Our eternal destiny is a whole different ballgame. And a false sense of security about eternity will have devastating consequences. Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we don't take these words lightly. The words that you give us in, in the Bible and, and just how it points us over and over and over again to our own sin and our need, our desperate need for a Savior. And Lord, we thank you that you are a God that saw the plight of, of, of humanity, the people that you created. And, and from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you began to put in place a, a story of redemption, a plan of redemption. You, you promised a Savior. And Lord, the reality of heaven and hell is just really hard to deal with. But we are so grateful that in your grace and in your mercy, you provided us with Jesus our Lord and our Savior, our Redeemer. And Lord, we just want to be true to him and true to you. And Lord, if there's anyone here today or anyone online or anyone who hears this message two weeks from now or two years from now that, that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would draw them to your heart that you would show them the truth, that you would give them light and life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Sean. Man, lots to chew on.
Let's just take a minute and just uh, just reflect. Holy Spirit, we're so great you are. Tender and kind. Thank you for this truth presented this morning. God, thank you for the conviction, just how you speak to each one of us. Do that work in our hearts. Just take a minute. If there's something that you need to confess before the Lord, if you get your perspective back and right, take inventory of where things have been. Do some business with God. Made my heart whole again. 
lives laid down, our heart surrendered to him. holds now that grace that continues to reach out to us never give up on us no matter what we think about it what we think about God that grace continues to extend Jesus, my Redeemer, there is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold my hope is only Jesus for my life is wholly bound to his oh how strange and divine I can sing all is mine yet not I but through Christ in me soul 
His power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley, he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ. In me, no fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future, sure, the price it has been paid for Jesus' blood suffered for my pardon and he was raised to overthrow the grave to this I hold my sin has been defeated Jesus now forever is my play oh the chains Shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ. 
sing hallelujah. Jesus, we place our security in you today, our only hope. God, forgive us for thinking too highly of ourselves and others. Forgive us for running in those circles, forgetting Forgive us for trusting in ourselves and things, possessions, and money, politics, religion. God, forgive us for not putting our hope, our only hope, in you, Jesus. So God, where we've done that, we say we're sorry. But we choose you today. You are our only hope. And we rejoice in that. Let's sing that one more time. Sing hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free.
Jesus. We love you, Lord. We thank you for bringing us to this place today. God, both physically, spiritually, emotionally, we thank you for bringing us to this place. God, help us to hold on to you as our only hope. desperate beggars begging for more of you thank you for your grace Jesus God we just want to give you this day and give you this week and ask that you would go before us help us to stay in this place forget tomorrow night prayer night and uh yeah continue this uh let's continue to be together and then thursday night don't forget we're gonna just show up here we don't really have an agenda we're just gonna come and worship the lord and um see what the lord does so i would encourage you to come and have a great week